Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It feels like we might get some movement on the NBA front. The pause that we're all on as we wait for what might happen with Kevin Durant might start moving if one of his destinations that he requested, somewhere with a big enough piece to be part of a trade that might work, might be out of the mix altogether. And it has us wondering if the Suns have gotten themselves in a bit of a pickle and what it means for the rest of uh, NBA free agency and all the pieces waiting to fall after Kevin Durant's move is decided. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and I am talking about DeAndre Ayton. This is a complicated situation. We have heard since last season that the Suns do not see DeAndre Ayton as a max player. They did not want to extend a max deal and seemingly hoped to be able to keep him under contract for less. Certainly would not want to lose him for nothing. But they never ended up extending him an offer or finding a sign-and-trade deal that might work, which has led to today, where the Pacers have offered him a max offer, and now the Suns are in a bit of a situation. Fitz, let's let Brian Windhorst, our ESPN NBA reporter, explain it in full with all the details and nuances today on NBA Today. The Pacers have been lining this up since the first day of free agency. They met with DeAndre Ayton coming right out of the gates, expressed their interest in him. And as the Suns elected really not to seriously engage on the type of contract that DeAndre Ayton wanted, the Pacers made moves to make this possible specifically trading Malcolm Brogdon to the Boston Celtics to open up the space to do this. Now, Malika, the Pacers don't like to do offer sheets. How much do they not like to do them? This is the second one they've done in 40 years, and the last one was for a very low-level role player. So they wanted to negotiate a sign-and-trade with Phoenix and had discussions to that end. They couldn't agree to terms. There was some uh, consideration that this could be a part of a bigger deal. We've talked about that on this show this week. But the Pacers are tired of waiting, and they went forward and made this move. Now, the real question is, do the Suns match? The concept of losing a player like DeAndre Ayton for nothing, which would happen if they didn't match in 48 hours, would be a devastating blow to Phoenix. We just have, we almost never see the loss of a restricted free agent to this level. But they do not believe that Ayton is a max player. They didn't believe he was a max player during the extension talks last fall. They do not believe he's a max player now. Matching this would make DeAndre Ayton untradeable until January 15th, so he couldn't be used in a, any kind of Kevin Durant trade, even mm. if they kept him. And it would push the Suns about uh, $15 million into the luxury tax, a very penal place that they have almost never gone before. So we are all going to be having our popcorn watching the Suns maneuver when they get this offer sheet and we see what bells and whistles are in it to see how toxic the Pacers might have made it. Fitz, they don't seem to have thought this through very well. I mean, I'm stunned. You're talking about a, a Suns team that was sitting at the top of the West last mm-hmm. season at the end of the regular season. That All feels season like long. I mean, they're, they're in a, a short window right now to try and win championships while they have Chris Paul. You can't tell me that getting rid of Aiton with nothing in return makes them better today or in the future if you don't even get equity back of some sort so now you put yourself in a situation where you don't want to overpay a player but if you don't overpay that player you make your team worse and in the meantime indiana turns around and says hey we think we can be a competitor with him we're going to offer him a 
massive deal how the Suns didn't see this coming, how the Suns didn't present protect themselves, and how they got themselves in this situation will forever be remembered as the reason this window collapsed on them. There's so many aspects here. Uh, what do you what do you think is the best case scenario now? Because most would argue worst case is you lose Aiden for nothing. So you got to keep him, which requires you to match. So now you can't be in the running for Kevin Durant, and you have a player on your roster, Fitz, that you have repeatedly showed you do not value as a max player who is now on your books as a max player. So you're, you're going over into the, into the tax, which Wendy mentioned, and presumably you have a pretty unhappy player who doesn't want to be there. It feels like in poker when you've just you've gone too far, you're pot committed at this point. I think they're pot committed to letting him go. And the stunning part is to think that they weren't able to work out any sort of a sign-in mm-hmm. trade and realize in that process that something's better than nothing. Because I think you're right. How do you bring Aiton back into that locker room? But also, how do you look Devin Booker in the eyes and say, hey, we know you've got an old Chris Paul that's going to be your teammate, and we just took away another piece that's going right. to that, that could have helped you be very good this year. Yes, you free up some cash, but you can't really use that at this point for anybody that's going to make the massive difference you need, and you you've got no guarantee that you have a path that leads you to Kevin Durant. Like I think that they have man- mismanaged this to the point that their franchise is going to be stuck in the middle of mediocrity, which is the worst place you could be coming off of the season they just had. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking about DeAndre Ayton's offer sheet, the richest in NBA history. It would surpass the four-year $107 million deal signed by Otto Porter Jr. with the Nets in 2017. Here's where we're sitting right now. Ayton has not yet signed the offer sheet. If he signs the offer sheet, he would be out of the conversation to be part of a bigger trade, either with Phoenix, if they were still trying to do this multi-team deal for Durant, or to go anywhere um, other than the potential for Phoenix. If he's if, if, like, if they could find a sign and trade to do, they would have to do it before he signs the deal. Because right now he's planning to sign this offer sheet. And once he's done that, you cannot try to do a sign and trade. All you can do is match as Phoenix. And then he's stuck there until January 15th. Now, do you want to do that? And then give yourself the time to find a location? Maybe. Do you want to believe that potentially the Nets are not in a rush to get rid of Kevin Durant either because it's Kevin Durant plus four years? So if you're not getting the right things back, you're not making that move. So in theory, could you could you sign Aiton and in January try to figure out the moves that you could make? Uh, you know, also worth noting, Bobby Marks has never really seen this as the move for the Nets because Aiton in Brooklyn would hard cap the Nets. And then Phoenix, without having Aiton, would need to really strip down their roster to get the $36 million to match KD's salary to send back to make it a viable trade. So it doesn't feel like this was ever the spot anyway. So maybe our focus is too much on what this means for Durant instead of just WTF sons. How did you let us get to this? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sarah, because at some point you look at it and say, let's take Kevin Durant off to the side. When you have the season that the Suns had last year, and some of our basketball experts were saying that the Suns would regret not being able to to bring home a championship last year because it felt like that was the spot for them. But you're bringing back enough star power to know that you are very competitive in the West. Without DeAndre Ayton, you're not. So now I'm looking at it and saying cost and replacement cost, right? So if I'm going to be worse or if I can't bring in a player that's anywhere near this, I don't really care about saving the money. So it becomes less about do I really want to give him four years, $133 million, 
Or, you know, if that's only a little bit more than I was comfortable giving him anyway, why do I not just push myself when you have this opportunity to try and be the best? I, I just think this is where franchises have to go for it. And that's what, frankly, we talked about the Warriors and their ability and, and want to go into the luxury tax if that's what it takes. You, you just have to get it done if it makes your team better. And they're doing nothing to make their team better if he walks away. I I think the Suns have to overpay for him. That's the only you have to overpay for him, and you have to hope that you can make you can mend that fence. Because if you can't, you are up a creek, and suddenly you're going to be rebuilding in a year. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's what we've kind of started to realize in the last few years is we used to think of max players as like top five in the league, and mm. now it's really just any star that you kind of need to have a couple of on your team, otherwise you're not doing anything. That's just the way it is. You can look at it as overpayment. You could say you don't value him that much, but unless you can find something good to get back in a sign-and-trade, you've really screwed yourself here. It's Bain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle motorcycle, RV, and boat insurance. Visit Progressive.com. And by the way, that's not a full-throated endorsement of DeAndre Ayton from me. The fact that he was benched late in the playoffs and he was underperforming, I would be very worried about giving him this, but I would have found another solution if I knew that he wasn't the guy, and they haven't done that. Coming up, the Orioles are relevant. We're going to talk to one of our baseball <laughs> experts to get to the bottom of this mystery. It's coming up next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at SiriusXM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I, I don't even know how to figure this out. Like, I, I'm not sure the Orioles or Mariners are ever going to lose again. That's just where we are. And so we need to get some <laughs> that's expertise. That's the Mariners. I mean, and that's, the Orioles. Come I mean, that, that's, that's what we're doing. Like, this is what, what's happening. So we're going we're gonna to get some expertise from Jesse Rogers, ESPN Major League Baseball insider. But, Jesse, it has come to my attention that you are calling us from Wrigley Field, which means you are basically in Sarah's backyard. The most important thing is the game is not started yet. So are, are we – do, do we raid the press? We're at the press box, right? Like, you're not sitting amongst the, the common folk. You're in the press box, right? No, no, no. Definitely in the press box. They actually have upgraded the food up here. It used to be yeah. the worst in the league. I don't, I don't think the Cubs mind me saying that because now I can say it's one of the better ones in the league. They actually have a decent spread. So, as Sarah knows, I am never going to push the, the, uh, the plate away from my, my uh, you know, my my chest, my stomach. So I'll, yes. I'll be diving in as soon as we're done. I, is there, sounds is there like something, time for me to get credentialed again if the food yeah. has been upgraded. What, what's really? the go-to? Much better, that, Sarah. What are we having? <laughs> like, what are we eating? Like literally, they have brisket. They have a good salad. Oh, wow. They have always have a good vegetable. It's like a, a real meal. It's not like wow. hot dogs and peanuts and stuff, which is good too. My son is in the stands. He's eating the hot dogs. I'm gonna have a real meal tonight in the press box. There you okay. go. I, I, Jesse Rogers right. talking baseball with us or snacks so far adjacent to baseball. So let's <laughs> yeah, talk baseball. People actual, are very angry, man. No. Actual baseball. <laughs> um, the, the Orioles are relevant. Now, that is to say they're still last in the AL East, but oh. they are above 500. They are at 45 and 44, and that is something to be celebrated. What is the key to the Orioles being in last but in a respectable way? Yeah, I mean, two things. They stayed the course. You know, eventually when you're rebuilding, something good is going to happen. You would hope if the plan, you know, if you see it through, they didn't change managers, they didn't panic, they kind of went through those 100 lost seasons. So they felt like they saw it coming. But in reality, what they're doing on the mound is quite amazing. Half the pitching staff has been DFA'd, released, 
let go from a minor league team. Like, they really put this pitching staff together, patchwork, and it's coming through. Their bullpen is top five in baseball. Their starters are just okay. But overall, they're pitching great. I think it's even surprised them. And it does say something. Mike Elias, the GM, came from Houston. We know Houston has a great pitching infrastructure. That's kind of the phrase, that's the, the, the modern phrase we use. Because it's not one guy. It's not just the pitching coach anymore. It's everybody together. So I think it's safe to assume he's brought that kind of philosophy, whatever successful philosophy he's worked in Houston. He's brought it to Baltimore. Um, I talked to some players yesterday that really credited several of their coaches, obviously the pitching coach included, and it, it's made a difference. And you have guys that have done nothing with other teams that have, are having success with Baltimore. That's been the key to this surge. I'm not sure it can last. I hope Oriole fans aren't listening, but you're going to ride this for as long as you can. I think they've got a young team in terms of um, good position players, but I'm not sure this pitching can last. They're going to have to you know, go out and find some maybe in the offseason and let some young guys grow. But so far, so good. It's been fun to watch. Yeah, at some point, though, Jesse, it's about what we expected coming into the season, right? Because the Orioles win 10 straight, everybody's happy. The Blue Jays are ahead of them in the standings, but they fired their manager. So, like, how does all of this shake out in your mind in the AL East? Well, it's certainly about expectations. I mean, Baltimore is exceeding them. Toronto is underachieving a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm here in Chicago, as you mentioned, and, and I, I, I see a lot of White Sox games. And the, the Blue Jays and White Sox remind me of each other. They're a little bit underachieving the White Sox even more, yet they did not fire their manager, and the Blue Jays did. They're also a little bit flawed. These are two of the worst teams in terms of balance in the lineup. Right-handed pitchers can neutralize the Blue Jays just like the White Sox. And the Blue Jays still are really good and should be better than 47 and 42. You just mentioned Baltimore, who, who came through here in Chicago. And, and I talked to Brandon Hyde, and he was just talking about what a beast – the, the East is, and he particularly pointed out Toronto, even more than the Yankees or Rays or Red Sox. Like he mentioned that Toronto is just such a beast, but they're underachieving a little bit. So, again, it goes back to expectations. There were a lot more for the Blue Jays, just like the White Sox, and, and both are underachieving in their own ways. And so that, that I think, is the move. You know, if you're underachieving, even if you're over 500, um, executives are, gonna, are going to look at that and say, we can do better, and that's what they're doing in Toronto. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, Jesse Rogers, ESPN MLB Insider is with us here. I believe you can follow him at Jesse Rogers ESPN. Jesse, the Mariners are um, undefeated, I believe, since Mina Kimes threw out the first pitch. They've been on a hell of a run. <laughs> My only fear, and it's mainly because I care about Mina, is that we know what happens, and we know usually how the later parts of the season go for Seattle. Is there reason to be optimistic that that team will keep it up? It's a great question. I, I think there is because this isn't a one-year wonder. This was coming. Like, this isn't out of nowhere. They had a good year last year. What actually was the surprise, Sarah, was their start. Like, everybody thought that, look, the AL West is, not, is no great division. Obviously, at the top it is, but we see the Angels are underachieving. Texas is good, but not great. Like, they, 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 they should be decent in that division. They should be a wild-card contender, and now they are. I think Julio Rodriguez has really lifted them. You know, when you get a rookie doing what he's doing, that can provide some energy that you may not expect or don't see coming. So they're kind of doing what, they're, what they should have been doing early on. I love the trade they made for Winker and, and Eugenio Suarez before the season. So 
so, yes, I think it, it can last because this is the way they should have been playing earlier in the year. Now, I don't know if they're a team that's going to go to 10 over 500 or 20 over 500, whatever the case may be. But they're a good team that should be in the wild card race, especially with three wild card teams. Jesse, speaking of the wild card race, uh, the, the trade deadline right around the corner, a lot of controversy about the Royals having so much of their roster, 10 players not available to travel to Toronto because of vaccination status. How does that play into the trade deadline in your mind? I don't think there's any doubt when it comes to position players, it, it, it plays into the, the deadline. Um, I mean, look, it's two months of the season, so you have to look at your schedule, and I haven't really done this yet for those AL East teams. If if Toronto, if, if the Yankees are done going to Toronto, that helps, right? If one of those AL East teams has is, is got three games left in Toronto, okay, maybe it's not so bad. If you have six or nine games left in Toronto, it's a different story. But you also have to consider the postseason. What if you're facing the Blue Jays in a postseason series? So it impacts it, but for, it's different for every team. You know, if you trade for Andrew Benatendi and he's your only player that can't go to Toronto for a three-game series in August, that's not so bad. So every team is a little bit different. It sounds like the Yankees are almost completely vaccinated. Maybe they can take on a player that can't play in Toronto for three games. But I think the bigger issue is actually the playoffs. If Toronto gets in, and you have a short series against mm-hmm. them, what do you do? You, do you leave Andrew Benintendi at home? You're going to have to. So I, I, it's different for every team, and, it, and, it, and it, it's also different based on how many games you have left up there. Go out to awesome. ESPN.com and check out his article on the Orioles and follow him on Twitter, as always, at Jesse Rogers ESPN. Jesse, thanks for hanging out with us. Go enjoy some brisket. Let us know how the food is. Thanks, Jesse. I will. I'll, I'll text you, Sarah. Take care. See ya. Perfect. <laughs> Oh, he didn't say text me. Like, look at that. Like, he just does. He uh, have your number? Probably not. You know, but that's, that's okay. Probably you know, one of the first things that you every, need. Every time somebody someone. comes in to go to a Cubs game, do you get blown up with it? Like, that's, that's well. Right, Jesse's right? from here. He's a Chicago guy. He's been on ESPN 1000 since before I was around. He was a Blackhawks guy for a really long time before switching to the Cubs beat. So it's a home Thank game that. for him. That's a home. So does he come over to the Spain household afterwards? The billionaire? No, uh, no, mansion? no. Only Nick, Nick Friedel uh, arrives okay. unannounced every single time he's in town. PZ uh, <laughs> SS. Yeah, what are you doing? Well, Nick, I'm um, doing some work because I'm a busy. Oh, I'm outside your house. Okay. That's, See you soon. that's exactly what I'm going to do to you at one point. All right, coming up, how will a former MVP fare with this new team? Our Colts reporter will answer that and more next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And, of course, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. Oh, we are almost to training camp. Thank God. I know so many football fans like me are stoked for it. And if you've been listening to ESPN Radio, you know what we've been doing, breaking down a couple of teams every single day. It is time to do some two-a-days now. We're going to break down the Colts. This is ESPN Radio's NFL Two-A-Days, the Indianapolis Colts. Matt Ryan, I think he can still play at an extremely high level. They've got the running game. They've had the defense. They're well coached. I I expect a lot out of this Colts team. Although their offensive line isn't what it once was, it's still pretty good. They got maybe arguably one of the best two to three running backs in Jonathan Taylor, who I think is really underrated. Go out, you get Stephon Gilmore and Ngakwe to rush the passer, and then bringing in Matt Ryan, who's an improvement at quarterback, I think they're the best team in the division. I always say, like, if you achieve certain things in life, you get to have a title from then on. And uh, our guest now 
is that. Mike Wells, you guys know, obviously, from his time covering so many things for ESPN, ESPN Radio, and the, the Colts. But also, Mike, now you're a professor because you're going to be teaching the journalism. And so, like, do I have to call you the professor every time we chat now? Is like, this this what happens? Oh, my goodness. You know, I was on uh, filling in with uh, Barton Hahn today with Randy Scott. And he spent the, almost the entire three hours calling me Professor Wells. I think mm-hmm. I'm starting to start having and start thinking that's my first name after a while. But no, Just, no, you know, no. Don't I'm, become I'm, a doctor because then we have to get into the Andre Snelling's <laughs> Professor, Doctor Z. Like it's too many. It's too much. I can't handle it. So stick with Professor. Why do I feel nah, like Sarah? I, I just feel I like Mike's going to show hey, us I, I, to the class and be like, don't no. do this. This is not what you do. <laughs> no, no, listen, I, I'm going by Mike, and as long as ESPN Radio can continue to have me fill in, I will gladly go by Mike. But I'll tell you, Fitch, something tells me if you and I ever do a show together, you're going to tease and go professor the entire time. Something, oh, yeah, something like, tells me that. Yeah, but you're going to call me Gilligan, and that's the way it's going to go from there. Okay, so uh, let, let's get into the Colts and all things uh, NFL going on. So uh, trying to figure out what's a, a reasonable expectation for Matt Ryan in this offense, coming away from the Falcons for the first time. What should Colts fans expect this year? You know what? I think the biggest difference is going to be from a leadership standpoint, um, an upgrade over Carson Wentz, because it was pretty obvious early on that Carson was not the type of leader that was uh, portrayed and have people saying he had a bad rep and you know, bad rap and everything after what happened in Philadelphia, more so than anything, the stuff that you were hearing out of Philly as far as how he was around his teammates in the locker room ended up being true. And that's not the case with Matt Ryan because it's been the complete opposite since he's been here. So much praise about how much leadership he has. But we all, we've all been around sports for a long time. It doesn't matter what type of leader you are. It's about can you throw a football? Can you avoid throwing interceptions? Can you make the big plays when necessary? And that's that's a question mark for me with Matt Ryan. I mean, yes, he's an upgrade talent-wise over Carson, but you know he's he's you know knocking on the door of forty in a couple of years. How much gas does he have left in the tank? You know, there's obvious questions about Matt Ryan and and adjusting to a new system and and you know the new young pass catchers he'll be working with. There's not that much doubt on the defensive side. My only question would be, and maybe this is self-serving because I want to feel a little bit for what we got here in Chicago, but how big of a deal is it for the defense to lose a guy like Matt Eberflus and to have different coaches? Well, first of all, Sarah, I don't know. It might be halfway through the season. You might you might send me a text or tweet and say, hey, Mike Wells, can Indianapolis have Matt Eberflus come back and be the defensive oh, coordinator no. because he's not – He's not he's not cut out as a head coach. You might be doing that, but Uh-oh. it is. You know what? Even Flus, he, he definitely put a stamp on a unit that prided itself on forcing a lot of turnovers. Their goal was to always to have 40 in a season. They never got it, but they still were very aggressive, led by, you know, all-pro linebacker Darius Leonard. I don't know if the word hits principle has been used in Chicago yet, but uh, I, I, only I started eight breaking million out times. It. I started getting goosebumps and getting breaking out in hives. He used it so often during his time here in Indianapolis. But Gus Bradley, former head coach, he was the defensive coordinator in Seattle when they had the Legion of Boom with Richard Sherman and company. Uh, the pieces are there. I mean, I don't know if Fitz said, you know, felt like when um, when his Raiders uh, traded away uh, Yannick and Dockaway to, to the Colts in the offseason to go with the Ford Buckner in the middle of the defensive line and Quiddy Pan on the other side. Darius Leonard, a linebacker, and Stephon Gilmore, a cornerback. So they've got they've got pieces there. It's going to be up to Bradley 
to see if he can get everybody in sync, especially when they're going to be facing, you know, the AFC West, including, you know, Derek, with Derek Carr, Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson this season. If you can't get to the quarterback, you're going to have a hard time winning in this league. Yeah, we're talking to Mike Wells, and you're right. Yannick Ngakwe, like, got a bad rap there. I, I was really surprised he was traded out, but, you know, I hope he continues to crush it. Frank Reich, in the meantime, sort of had this golden child image at first. Now, with the struggles that the Colts have had trying to figure out the quarterback position, is there any dull on the shine around the perception for Coach? Uh, is everybody still good with Frank Reich? <laughs> Woo-wee, man. Okay, that's what I thought I heard. You know what? I mean, Jim Mersey is saying the right things about Frank Reich, but when if you had to put one person under the spotlight for the failure of Carson Wentz, it was Frank Reich. He was the, he was the one who went out and put his neck on the limb and said, "Hey, let's get Carson Wentz here. I can get him. I can hopefully get him back to where he was in 2017, prior to tearing his ACL. I can get him back there again." And it turned out to be a complete utter failure. You look at simply the stats. You say, oh, wow, he had 27 touchdowns and only seven only seven interceptions. Well, Carson Wentz didn't know how to win big games. He made, honestly, one game-changing play to help the Colts, and that was on Christmas night in Arizona. They needed him to beat your Raiders and to beat Jacksonville. He just needed one of those two victories in the final two weeks when Jonathan Taylor was taken out of the running game, and all Carson Wentz did was basically tinkle down his leg to show he's not that guy at quarterback. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking to Mike Wells. You can follow him at Mike Wells NFL. Who are we looking for on the offensive side that maybe would be a surprise to help Matt Ryan settle in and, and put up some decent numbers? Well, they better have multiple surprises on offense, all jokes <laughs> aside, there, because the reality is outside of Michael Pittman Jr., wide receiver, they've got an unproven group of uh, players at that position. Jack Boom, Mr. Reliable at tight end, retired. So they don't have that guy. They lost two of their offensive linemen, including their left tackle and their right guard. So they got to be able to protect Matt Ryan's blind side. So it's up in the air on who looks up a wide receiver. But a name to keep an eye out of, Mo Cox, the tight end. He's going to step into that number one role. He's a former college basketball player at VCU when Shaka Smart was there. He plays above the rim. His issue is he just – He's been way too inconsistent, and he's always had to look over his shoulder when he made a mistake. Now it's his show and his opportunity, and Matt Ryan loves the tight ends, especially out of the, out of the pay, uh, play action. So I'm going to go with Mo Alley-Cox at tight end. What's the record prediction for this year? Woo-wee, man. I think the odds have him at nine and a half, and I'm taking the over barely. Ten, ten wins. I give him ten wins, um, and I think that'll be enough to knock off um, – the team, uh, the team, uh, the, uh, the city you live in currently, Mr. Fitz, uh, mm. the Tennessee Titans. Taking out the Titans, all right. Wow. So you th- they're winning the division with ten wins. Then look at that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I do not believe in Ryan Tannehill, especially with no AJ Brown. Uh, it's going to put a lot of pressure on um, on Derrick Henry. The one biggest advantage I would say I would take over the Colts is. Give me Mike Rabel. I love Mike Rabel as a head coach. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, he's that guy who was sporting the Timberland boots, wearing, you know, got the blue jeans, ripped up blue jeans on with a, with a uh, hard hat on and one of them old school lunch pails and just says, I'm going to put, I'm we're going to brawl out and I'm going to knock you out. So I love how he coaches. So that's the one big advantage I give the Titans, the head coaching position. I don't disagree with anything you just said about the Titans, actually. And uh, look, we'll be interesting to see how it plays out in wait, the wait, meantime. Wait, hey, can you say, hey, say that again? Say it again. Can, can you say it one more time, please? <laughs> you're, you're right, Mike. I mean, I don't disagree with anything you said. Like, look at that. That's why you're the professor 
I'm the student, man. We appreciate you hanging out with us. Almost over the goal line, but uh, you know that we're going to call you every single time we need you, and we expect you even when That's you've right. got fancy titles Take to still answer the bat phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, 100%. Hey, 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 I got y'all. Hey, you guys have a good one now. Look, I'm always a smart eye. I'll say this. Indiana is going to be very lucky to have Mike Wells teaching people there because he is absolutely a pro's pro at everything he does and also just one of the genuine nice guys in this business. I'm so happy for him, uh, but we're still going to keep calling him. That's all I'm saying. See, Mike Wells and I never have Twitter arguments, but coming up, what happens when Twitter arguments involving a former NFL MVP spill over to ESPN Radio? It happened. You got to hear it, and then we'll talk about it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. A couple days ago, we were talking about the top 10 quarterback list that we always remind people is not the work of one man or woman here at ESPN. Some (laughs) folks compile it after a whole bunch of people, coaches, GMs, front office people, reporters, etc., all chime in with their opinions. But on that top 10 quarterbacks list, we had a little bit of fun with some of the folks we were surprised not to see, and that included Lamar Jackson. Some people have been angrier than others that he didn't make the cut, that he was honorable mention. Uh, And some people maybe thought that was absolutely correct. One being a former Ravens player. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And the reason I say we were having some fun is because Bernard Pollard, former NFL safety, is not having fun. Uh, What he is doing (laughs) is not fun. It's not playful. It's not, well, this is a dumb list, but it's the middle of summer and this is what we do to keep ourselves busy kind of interaction. He is going after Lamar Jackson, and there is a beef, a true beef of the Twitter variety last night, keeping fans tied to their phones, refreshing to figure out who was going to throw the next punch. Let's just hear a little of what Bernard Pollard thinks about Lamar Jackson. We get this as the former NFL safety joined Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max. First, he seems to believe that a former MVP in the NFL just a couple years ago is only welcome on the Ravens roster. I truly believe he needs to be paid by the Baltimore Ravens. Is it top dollar? Yes. Whatever Deshaun Watson got fully guaranteed, Lamar should get in Baltimore. I think it's only in Baltimore. No other team will ever use him like that and no other receivers. I don't think they can consistently be in play with him. Okay, so let's just start there. He's sort of hedging his bets. He spent a bunch of time calling him out, said that no top wide receivers would want to go to Baltimore if Jackson's there. He said that their run-first offense is, you know, very specifically suited. It allows him to have a pacifier on offense, that he needs to work on his passing. He repeated a bunch of uh, things that are abjectly false, like the fact that he got hurt in the pocket, and yet everyone still says he gets hurt because of his runs and his legs but still said he should get top dollar, the kind that Deshaun Watson got that we've never seen before. So he's a little bit playing both sides. Yeah, 100%. And look, there's just I I just don't buy the argument. You want to tell me right now that Carolina wouldn't pay whatever it takes to, I don't know, have Lamar Jackson as their quarterback? You want to tell me that the Seahawks, for everything that they're trying to accomplish as an organization, wouldn't pay whatever it takes to have Lamar Jackson as their quarterback? I mean, 
that's just two teams off the top of my head. But you start going through the replacement game and saying, hey, would you like a relatively young former MVP to come in and be your quarterback? Yes, the answer to that for many teams is going to be yes. So to think that there isn't anyone that would give them that sort of money, I think is just absurd. Yeah, it, the whole beef is a little bit confusing because, like I said, he sort of plays both sides. He's not nearly as complimentary as he should be for the kind of play we've seen from Lamar Jackson. And he's certainly unnecessarily going back and forth on Twitter beefing with them. But he also seems to be buoying his his paycheck and trying not to go all the way to the side of, you know, he's a fraud and he's not good enough, right? Um, this guy's 37 and 12 as a starter. He led the NFL in passing touchdowns. Passing touchdowns. Passing touchdowns in 2019. He got hurt. There's still some questions in the postseason for sure. But this is a former MVP. And it got pretty ugly on Twitter and again on KJ and Max where Bernard started talking about the Twitter beef and his intentions were he to be on the field with Lamar. He's responded, and, and, and he, he wants to argue back um, as far as for his sake. And, and I'm cool with that. You can call, say, oh, nobody knew me. You had to Google me. I didn't go to the Hall of Fame. I don't care about the Hall of Fame. I what I did was I knocked suckers' heads off. That's exactly what I did. I don't care about no Hall of Fame. I don't care about getting no, no, no accolades from anybody. When we stepped on the football field, 31 was going to be in the place that he was supposed to be, and he was going to knock your head off you. If you came in his spot or if I made contact with you by running to you, I'm trying to do whatever I can to knock you out. So I, I, as far as him, pers- the personal attacks, that's fine. He said he's going to run me over. Well, I'd have took his head off. I promise you he would not have finished the game. Wow. Really tough guy stuff there, Fitz. This, just, this is, we've really fi- figured out who wins this beef. It's not the one who's a former MVP just a couple years ago. It's the one who said y- you would be playing without a head. I, I don't even understand the, the mindset on it. Like, I, I can't decide if I'm listening to a former NFL player talk about a current NFL player or if I'm listening to a really bad promo for a WWF match right. in the 80s. Like, I, I promise you I'll knock his head off. Like, what are we doing here? Like, uh, th- there's just a moment of you can disagree with whether somebody's elite and they can have their words, but there has to be a line at some point in the way you go after somebody. I don't understand the win here for Bernard Pollard at all. And and look, I, I know of his, his time in the league. I enjoyed watching him play. This just doesn't make any sense to me. It feels like he's fighting a losing battle from the outset, and this is where it feels like then you, you just start to question all of his opinions. Well, also for Lamar, you want to respond quickly and be like, oh, man, that's cool if that's how you feel, you know, whatever. Okay, I think you're better off ignoring him, right? It's not just Pollard. Lamar, you know, Lamar said, nobody speak of you. I had to Google you, Lil Bra. I never heard of you until I seen you. Keep dissing like you as a Hall of Famer, but you far from it across the ocean, like overseas. Like, you don't need to get back and forth because you're giving more validity to what he's saying by caring enough to go back and forth with him, right? I mean... Just just laugh at it. Just laugh at it that no one wants to play with him. And also, in the end, he, again, he's sort of hedging. Top 10 talent, but not a top quarterback. Give him max money, but only you know with the Ravens. It's like Bernard Pollard himself knows that what he's saying is a bit absurd. It, well, he has to, right? Like, 
this has to be theater at some point. I mean, you can't play both. Look, you're either in on Lamar Jackson. Like, I thought it was interesting to say he's a top 10 player, not a top 10 quarterback, because that just doesn't make any sense either. Like, when you start to, to stack those things together, I, I just don't know if Bernard Pollard, like, doesn't know exactly what point he was trying to make or if he's just sort of scattered all over the way to hedge his bets in, in a way that doesn't alienate too many people. If I'm Lamar Jackson, I would love to look at Lamar and be like, yeah, just move on. I also know that there are days that's hard for me. Like there, there are days that the, the Twitter hate just gets to me and I find myself responding when I shouldn't and I know better. But when you're an MVP in the league, you want to stand up for, for what you've done and what you've accomplished, especially for people that should know what you've done and what you've accomplished. Like I do think that there's a level of when a player comes after another player's game, you expect that player to just be better and be smarter about the way they break it down because they played. Right. I listen. I I think there's a possibility that Bernard Pollard talked to one guy, and that guy said, "Man, I don't want to play with him because I think there's other quarterbacks that have better touch," and he just yeah. ran with it and said, "Nobody wants to play there." Um, the whole thing is 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 fairly silly, but then again, so is Lamar Jackson not being in the top ten quarterbacks. I think Mina Kimes said it really well the other day on NFL Live that a lot of the arguments about Lamar still come from before he ever played an NFL snap. And a lot of them come from people who are making assumptions without watching tape. He got hurt in the pocket, not on the run. He's had tremendous years in terms of passing statistics. A lot of it is falling back on some pretty tired narratives. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. The road to the rematch is on as Bantamweight champ Juliana Pena and former champ Amanda Nunes go head-to-head as coaches on the historic 30th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Stream the series now exclusively on ESPN+. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Fitz, we're doing two-a-days all week as we continue heading towards camp. Today we got the Colts and the Saints. We already talked Colts with Mike Wells. Coming up, we're going to talk to Catherine Terrell about the Saints. But I want to throw up some social asks. We've been doing this every day since we started this, asking folks how many regular season wins they think for various teams. What else do you want to ask? Is it worth trying to get into how long people think Lamar, I'm sorry, um, Jameis will last as the starter for the Saints? Are we we into that? I like I like Jameis, and then I think we can do the same thing for the Colts. Like, will Frank Reich still be the coach after this year? Like, yep. if the Matt Ryan thing blows up, I got to wonder if the Colts organization looks around and says, we don't have our guy. So I think that's a fair question, too. Yeah, you know, I've seen that question asked a lot, and I do think that he probably did himself some favors by coming out right and saying, I'm owning this. It was me who stood up for him. It was me who asked for him to come here. It didn't work out. You know, I'm taking ownership of that. I think that buys you something more so than trying to spread around the guilt or pass it off to someone else. Now it's just a matter of putting up some wins and making good on on the new guy. Coming up, a historic day in Las Vegas. We'll break it down and more with an expert next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. You can continue answering our questions, our NFL predictions during two-a-days at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. But let's switch gears here and talk a little WNBA with our favorite WNBA reporter for The Athletic, Lindsey D'Arcangelo. Lindsey, huge offensive showing from the Aces today, and WNBA record 71 points in the first half against the Liberty. What have you seen from them lately? Well, I was a little concerned before the All-Star break because the biggest knock on, on the Aces is their short bunch. You know, you have the starters mm-hmm. playing 30, 35-plus minutes. And, um, you know, once you get to midseason and towards the end of the season, towards playoffs, fatigue could set in. But these last three games, they're averaging 107 points. Uh, 
Asia Wilson is, is averaging 25.6 per game. Kelsey Plum is, is out of her mind, 22 points per game. And uh, both, of, both of those guys account for 45% of their scoring. And like as, as you saw earlier today with the game you just mentioned, uh, 108 to 74, the game was essentially over after the first quarter. They shot 77% from the field during that first quarter. It's just that's what we, we were used to seeing at the beginning of the season, and it's nice to see them sort of recapture that magic. That being said, Lindsay, let's face it, Mark Davis didn't pay Backy Hammond a ton of money to come in for regular season success. Is there an unusual amount of pressure on the Aces to actually get to the final and win it this year? I don't know if there's an unusual amount of pressure. I think the spotlight is definitely on Hammond um, because of uh, the reason you mentioned as far as the salary goes and just her being a first-time coach and what she's been able to do with this team so far. Um, I, I think it's more of this team is really good, and, and when they're playing really well on both ends of the, of the court, we see how they can just run over teams. But again, my biggest concern would be the short bench and, and how that's going to play um, in, in the playoffs and if, if that might be their Achilles heel. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Lindsey D'Arcangelo. I would agree with you, especially if they end up facing up against a team like the Sky, who are oh. extra deep. Let's talk <laughs> Commissioner's Cup. We'll get a potential finals preview coming up in just a couple mm-hmm. days here. For those who don't know, what is the Commissioner's Cup, and do you think it's worked to drive interest? So it's basically an in-season tournament where uh, some of the regular season games are designated Commissioner Cup games. And so throughout the season, every time you play one of those games, what it, you, it, your record for win-loss um, gets added up to the midpoint of the season, which is where we are now. And the two teams with the best win-loss record in those designated games meet in the Commissioner's Cup. You, those two teams have the opportunity to win some extra money, clout, a trophy that's hopefully bigger than Kelsey Plum's All-Star <laughs> MVP trophy. Um, <laughs> but as you mentioned, we got the Chicago Sky and the Las Vegas Aces um, as, as the two teams with the best Commissioner Cup record, and they'll face off on July 26th. I mean, a $500,000 prize for this is not a small amount. Do the players mm-hmm. get more amped up for this? I think so. Any Anytime you have uh, an opportunity to you know put some more cash in your pocket and, and get some just some added clout, I think is a big motivating factor. Yeah, we'll see if it's uh, driving any extra interest. I know a lot of times the NBA uses the WNBA as a sort of incubator, so maybe they're trying to figure out uh, even more in you know interior inside the season uh, opportunities at the NBA level as well by testing this out. Uh, let's talk about some of the changes to next season while we're at it. Uh, 40 games next year, charters, charter flights for this year's finals. What else do you think should be top of the list for the WNBA in terms of changes? I mean, as always, better promotion and marketing on all fronts. It just uh, you see these little increases here and there. Last season, we saw it with the, with the different jerseys that that Nike produced, um, three different sets of jerseys for the for the team. That was great. That that put a lot of um, hype out there, you know, as far as get, get merchandise goes. But they need to do more stuff like that season on season and, and just just get better at it year over year. And then the second would be, for me, more games on television. I mean, we've seen the ratings go up every time more games get put on television. And I'm talking about accessible television. Like, every time a game is on ABC, it, it always does well. And, and even uh, at, at ESPN's main channel, your channel, um, you know, you walk into a bar, that's what's usually on. So if there's a WNBA game on and that's being aired, you know, people are going to see it. And, and that just, just, it just adds to the growth. So those would be my two main things. 
You mentioned the TV portion of it. And look, Lindsay, I work a lot in digital media for ESPN. So I do believe in the power of Twitter, Facebook, YouTube for what they can bring for monetization and growth of, a, of any product. I believe in that. But it is difficult seeing the games be on Facebook or weird places in general. Has the league deemed this year's, success, this year's TV work successful? I would think so. I mean, we won't really know the results until the end of the season and once you get all the regular season stats and, and data in. But uh, I would think so. I mean, just as somebody who covers the league on a regular basis, year in and year out, I mean, every year it's getting better and, and viewership numbers continually grow up. Grow up. So, um, yeah, I would, I would consider it success. And then that's just something they have to keep building on. Lindsay Darkangelo with us here on Spain and Fitz, WNBA reporter for The Athletic. Who's a player this season we should be talking about and aren't? Yeah, that's a great question because I feel like we're talking about all the players we, we should be that are the young and up and coming, the ones who've been staples the past few years. Um, I think Jackie Young is getting the recognition she deserves for just her improvement and evolution over the past three years. Um, Brianna Jones for the Connecticut Sun is another player I think that has just worked so, so hard to get to where she is right now. Kelsey Plum, as I mentioned earlier, is just, I mean, Becky Hammond has unleashed something in her <laughs> that is just so fun to watch. Um, she's, she's in the MVP conversation in my book. So, yeah, I think, I think we're kind of, we are kind of talking about uh, these players and who are just sort of stepping up and taking that, ne- and that and stepping up and getting to that next level in their game. Is there a team you have your eye on that you think is going to go on a run in the second half? Uh, I've been up on the Lynx, actually. Um, hmm. They just had a really horrible start to the season, and, and they've, they've, I think they've turned a corner, and they've, they've beaten some, some top-ranked teams. Um, they, they went through a stretch where they, they lost some games, but they only lost them by, by single digits, six points or less. And I really think after uh, once this week starts up again and um, – we get into the second half of the season. I, I believe they're going to make the playoffs. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking to Lindsay Dark Angel. You can follow her at Dark Angel with a C instead of a K, Dark Angel 21. Hey, before we let you go, I want to ask about the Mercury quickly because it feels like we've maybe fizzled a little bit on talking about potential Skylar Diggins-Smith rumors. I, I never really thought a trade was likely, but there was tension with Diana. There was the clown emoji for her coach. Now we got Diana kicking fouls. We've still got Brittany Griner's situation. That team, and I forgot Tina Charles, you know, got her way out of there. That team has just had a lot of drama what do you make of what's gone down in Phoenix this season? I mean, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for the Mercury. And I think before the start of the season, when we saw them put swing for the fences because they made it to the finals last year and lost your beloved Sky, they wanted to get back. They wanted to get over that hump. And so they put together this what looked like a super team, and then it all has gone out the window. And like you said, um, Griner is still detained in Russia, and, and that's just such a, a difficult situation there. You got to believe it's affecting the players um, mentally, emotionally, and then the the game, the on court um, chemistry just hasn't been there. Tina Charles has left. Um, both DT and, and Skylar are very competitive players, and and you can see that there's just been some friction between them. And and also, I think DT's frustration is at a, a boiling point this season, and it, it spilled over to the court. Um, she's relying on her aggressiveness and, you know, she's, she's getting to that point where players are, are quicker now and they can keep up with her moves. And I think it's just, 
she's looking to try to get that edge and it's just, just hasn't been there. And it's from an optics standpoint, as you mentioned, like kicking fouls um, in that, in that play against the Lynx, it's just, it, it, from an optics point of view, just, just looks really bad. And, and then you got, you have to wonder too, Vanessa Nygaard, the first year head coach, was she the right person for this? Because it, it just right. seems like it's getting away from her in a big way. We talked a lot about old people can dream too. We focused too much maybe on the dreams and not the old part of that. It's starting to catch up. Starting to catch up. That's mm-hmm. no uh, no slide on the goat, but yeah, we're seeing it a little bit. Uh, and like you said, tough season for them. Hey, Lindsay, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, always happy to talk WNBA with you guys. We are too. Awesome stuff. Spain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance. And now a no frills ad brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Here it is. You could say big when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive. That's it. See, just a good old-fashioned, straightforward ad. See if you could save it, 1-800-PROGRESSIVE or progressive.com. Coming up, when there's too much news and not enough time, there's only way to handle it. Quickies, next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Oh, this just does make me feel good. It just makes me want to, I don't know, jump around. I'm wiggling in my seat, Sarah. That's I don't I know, say. jump around? Is that there's, there's, is that what you just said? That was said? terrible, Fitz. This yeah. just makes me, so much. I don't know, no, jump, no, around. jump around. Right. will be that, here that all week. very intentional. Wow. I actually got a note uh, today from the producer of College Football Live. I'm hosting tomorrow with Ryan McGee and Sam Macho. And uh, she said, look, uh, we already got warned about you and McGee with the dad jokes. And I'm like, I'm sorry if the bosses yeah. don't understand cool. Mm-hmm. But now that I've been warned about it, they're even coming harder during college football live. So nobody's going to like that. No one's safe. Well, yeah, nobody's safe. All right. Speaking of not safe, well, no, you should always be safe when you do this. It's time for quickies. <laughs> Safety. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. All right, you know what we're going to do. We're going to run you through a bunch of stories of what's happening across the world of sports, get to a lot of it, and we start with the Washington Commanders, Dan Snyder. Now, according to some reports, the Wall Street Journal reporting that Dan Snyder has been avoiding being served his subpoena by sitting on a yacht because he can't be served there. In the meantime, <laughs> now it looks like he's, his lawyers are saying he'd be happy to talk to everybody virtually, but he will not unless it's a voluntary conversation which is important, Sarah, because in a voluntary conversation, he can refuse to answer. If he's subpoenaed, mm. he cannot. So the chess match going on right now is rather disgusting. Some of the takes on it, though, are quite good. At Dan Snyder's yacht, who, by the way, congrats on hopping on this story right away and creating your own account, said his legal defense was first used by T-Pain in the Lonely Island. I'm on a boat, mother bleepers, don't you ever forget. Uh, and then the secondary one is from a uh, at Jay Billinson. It's got some memes from uh, Arrested Development. Uh, it's it's the Fonz. It says uh, he's a, he's a lawyer on Arrested Development. Can I say something to my client? Take to the sea. And he tries to get the Bluth family patriarch to get on a boat to hide from the law. Uh, it's pulled right out of our favorite. TV shows, but it is in fact real life that he's spending enough time on his yacht to avoid a subpoena. Absolutely embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, the thought that you're just A, you're rich enough to hang out on a yacht while your right. two private jets wait at Dulles Airport to pick you up whenever you're ready. 
for the same people that are going to be asking for public assistance uh, in getting funding for their new stadium mm-hmm. is already a joke for me. But just thinking about like uh, you know hanging out on a boat, you it, look if if you want me to hang out on your yacht with you, Sarah, so that I can be avoid avoided uh, anything, I'm in for it. What but, was going to say, uh, are we anticipating being subpoenaed? No, I, I just figured like avoiding anything. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pay enough. a bill. We should I'll also avoid saying subpoena too many times during quickies. Yeah. That's probably fair. All right, let's go to the next story. Quickies. All right, this is obviously a very serious one as we continue to keep you updated on Brittany Griner's trial and the situation going on. And uh, there were some expectations that she might actually testify. That did not happen today. Instead, she had two character witnesses appear, uh, teammates that have played with her in Russia. So uh, an important moment to have people come out and speak for her, Sarah. Yeah, it was a teammate and the GM of her team uh, speaking in a very brief court session today. Uh, The first believed contact in person that Brittany, Brittany has had with anyone that she knows other than the Russian attorney hired for her case since she was arrested back in February, if you can believe that. There's been uh, some quotes from it, very nice comments, both from the GM and the teammate. Um, but careful, as expected. I hope this trial will be over soon and with a positive outcome. We miss her energy. We're here to support her. Thank God she feels well and looks good. The sort of thing that you would expect from people who are aware of how those trials work, how the Russian government works. And as we've said over and over again, always follow TJ Quinn's reporting on this to understand that the trial is considered theater, that there will only be a guilty verdict, that then it will be up to some sort of negotiating tactic. She is essentially a hostage at this point. Anything that happens during this trial is theater to try to make it feel as though there's some realistic due process happening when in fact she is a hostage and the Russian government is demanding returns of their own prisoners or, or, or otherwise in order for her return. I love how many people that don't understand our own judicial system are now trying to pretend that they understand right. the Russian system. Yes. I would just tell everybody, suck up a little humility and read smart people. Like This is not an easy yeah. situation. So uh, we'll keep you updated, obviously, as we get more updates on uh, how this plays out. Next up, Quickies. All right. Now, just when you thought we were maybe done talking about vaccination status with players, we are not. And this is pretty substantial as the Royals missed 10 unvaccinated players for their road series in Toronto. Now, they're they're playing the Blue Jays this weekend. But again, there is no wiggle room on this. When you go to Canada, you have to be vaccinated. So suddenly the Royals had to figure out how to fill out their roster. And as we've been talking about already in the show, it creates some interesting conversations around trade deadline, not just for the Royals, but for every team. Like if you are looking to acquire someone, you probably need to ask the question of their vaccination status, knowing that there's a chance you could be playing Toronto in the playoffs. And that would mean everything to your season. Yeah, I mean, when you're missing four of your top hitters, two of your best starting pitchers, you're out in Toronto playing without 10 total players. That's a lot. And, you know, with all due respect to the Rays, uh, sorry, to the Royals president and understanding that my menchies will get lit up as they always do. The message out there should not be at the end of the day, we're an organization that promotes and encourages individual choices. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about vaccinations against a deadly virus, which, by the way, the newest strains of 
are more transmissible than the measles, which makes it now the most transmissible virus in the history of known viruses. And we understand that if your viral load is lower from being vaccinated, that you cannot get it or not pass it, and that you stop the exchange of the virus person to person. And yet here we are with people still insisting on quote unquote doing their own research and making their own choice when we know that it's dangerous for the greater population and our ability to move past the virus. I cannot believe we are still having this conversation now. I also think it's wild that as fans, so many fans that watch all of these sports will sit there and they will destroy an athlete that wants to be, I don't know, in the hospital with their wife when they're having a child. And Mm -hmm. that personal decision is suddenly not respected by fans. But this one is like uh, it it is it is amazing to me how we pick and choose which personal decisions we think Mm -hmm. are detrimental to our teams and which aren't. So uh, obviously uh, that's going to be wild for the Royals to figure out. And it's going to be a factor for everybody in Major League Baseball as we get ready for the playoffs later in the year. And let's go to the next story. Quickies. This one's kind of crazy. Fox Sports Radio host Doug Gottlieb is being sued for libel. And this is because, the, the quote, he false, uh, falsely and recklessly defamed agent Casey Close and Excel Sports Management in a tweet that claimed they had not presented a contract offer to Freddie Freeman during free agency, according to a complaint filed in a New York court. Mm. So he tweeted something out, and now they're coming at him saying, hey, th- this is not okay. I was stunned to see this. Yeah, the report, remember, said that Casey Close didn't tell Freddie Freeman about the Braves' final offer, and that's why Freddie ultimately fired him as he's frustrated with his decision to leave Atlanta. And it does say that they gave him a chance to retract, and he failed to do so. So I guess this is the F around and find out portion of this exercise. Yeah, that is a wild story. All right, we got to get back to two-a-days, obviously. We need to figure out if Jameis Winston and Dennis Allen can lead the Saints back to the postseason. We'll do that next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Again, the big news of the night, as tweeted out by ESPN from Woj just about a minute ago. The the Suns have officially matched DeAndre Ayton's four-year, $133 million offer sheet from the Indiana Pacers. His agent told Woj, remember, Ayton can't be traded without his consent for a full year. So, uh, that is important information for everybody to have, and obviously we'll keep breaking it down all night on ESPN Radio. But in the meantime, it's time for the Saints to go marching in. We're doing two-a-days, and it's New Orleans Saints time. This is ESPN Radio's NFL Two-a-Days, the New Orleans Saints. I think the addition of Jarvis Landry puts them neck and neck with Tampa Bay. Neck and neck. The Saints are better now than they were this time last year, and the Buccaneers are worse. The Saints are a very strong contender to be Super Bowl favorites because they have one of the best rosters in all of football, and Jameis just has to continue to not throw the ball to the other team. All right. Well, we're going to get everything you need to know from the Saints from some expertise from The Athletic. Catherine Terrell, Saints reporter from The Athletic, joining us now. Always appreciate the time, Catherine. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, The Dennis Allen change uh, head coach seems to be kind of under-talked about at this point. So we're almost taking for granted that everything will be just fine. What do you expect from Dennis Allen in his first year as head coach for the Saints? Well, it's really interesting. It seems like the Saints just kind of want to keep everything status quo. It's almost like 
they want to take the the best years of Sean Payton and, and try to relive that. Uh, this season under Dennis Allen, you can kind of see that with some of his hires. Uh, he kept offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael, and then he went out and and rehired Doug Marone, and he mostly kept the staff intact. So it'll be interesting to see how that translates without Drew Brees, without Sean Payton, with Pete Carmichael calling the plays uh, for the whole season for the first time. So not really sure what to expect when you look at a stint with the Raiders, which obviously didn't work um, for numerous reasons. But I think the big question is, did that not work because of Dennis Allen or because of all the other factors involved? So I'm uh, really not quite sure totally what to expect this year from him. You mentioned consistency at the top, a lot of consistency on the roster as well. Uh, a lot of the same players, but then also being able to whittle down the cap so that they could sign guys like Jarvis Landry and Teron Matthew and, and Jameis. So the expectations based solely on off-season moves, from what I've heard, people are very high on this team. Do you share their enthusiasm? I think I, the team has a higher ceiling than a lot of outside people think. But I also think the big question here is so much hinges on them getting the best out of some of their aging players. So if they're aging players who happen to be their best players, like Demario Davis, Cam Jordan, uh, Matthew, just to name a few, if they play well, then I think the Saints will be okay. But if these players kind of start to slide off the cliff, then I think the team can be in trouble. And then obviously there's the whole Jameis factor. Uh, how does Jameis play? You know, he only got seven games, um, not even seven games, to show what he could do last year. So, you know, whether or not he plays well is another big, I think, part of the puzzle. And, I, you know, I keep adding names, but then that depends on Michael Thomas. So it all kind of pieces together. But I think it really comes down to can they get another good season out of their players that are already over 30? I mean, I was proud of us that we went that far without saying Jameis Winston. So now that we've opened that can of worms, what's the reasonable expectation in your mind for Jameis? Well, I think that the offense obviously struggled last year. I don't really think that was Jameis's fault. I think they, at the beginning of the season, they played him very conservatively because they had no wide receivers. I mean, they were really digging down deep in that wide receiver room. I think – Outside of Louisiana, it would be hard for people to name most of the Saints wide receivers from last year. Um, that's kind of how bad it got. So I think the expectations for Jameis are high at this point, and they should be. You know, there's really no more excuses. He said last year he didn't get time with the first-team offense because he was in a quarterback competition with Taysom Hill. Okay, well, they've already said Taysom's not a quarterback anymore, so you eliminate that. <laughs> um, the wide receiver problem, well, theoretically – Michael Thomas is coming back, right? But, you know, it's been so long since we've seen a healthy Michael Thomas. I, I don't think you can mark that as a given. But, you know, really, for Jameis this year, there's no excuses. He really needs to take that next step. And I, I think he's capable of leading this team. I think the team played a lot better under him. It kind of fell apart after he got hurt, and they had to go through three more quarterbacks, which is to be expected of many teams. Um, but, you know, I, I think that – there's a lot on his shoulders, and he really needs to kind of rise to the occasion this year. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We continue our two-a-days with the Saints and Catherine Terrell from The Athletic. Alvin Kamara likely to be suspended about six games. At least that's what expected. Who steps up, and how big of a deal is it for this team if he misses that many? Yeah, the Alvin Kamara situation is interesting because 
He has another court date in August related to that off-season battery charge. I don't know if his court date's going to get continued again. I mean, it's probably possible it does. It's been continued several times. If that's the case, maybe they get through the season without him getting suspended. Um, really, really don't know with that, and I think the team doesn't know either. But I think it would kind of go back to the, some of the guys we mentioned earlier. I think that Michael Thomas has really got to put this team on his shoulders along with Jameis Winston. You know, he was their star next to Alvin Kamara before he got hurt in 2020, which is crazy that I'm saying got hurt in 2020. That's how long ago it was. We're hmm. coming on two years. So, you know, Michael Thomas was such a big asset to this team uh, back then, you know, for lack of a better phrase. So, you know, if Kamara goes down, um, we're really going to – they're really going to have to lean on him. I love the draft pick for Chris Olave. I mean, obviously had an incredible college career at Ohio State. What difference does he end up making in this offense to you? Well, I think he's already shown a lot of really good signs early on. He's working with Michael Thomas, uh, which is, you know, great that those two are working together. I think he's looked good in the limited amount of time that we've gotten to see him. You can't really tell you know, that much from OTAs, as we all know, not until they get the pads on. But I think just adding him, adding Landry, uh, theoretically getting Thomas back, I mean, it just shifts the wide receiver room totally. Last year, Marquez Callaway had a good training camp. He was very consistent. And he should have been the number three, maybe. But all of a sudden, he had to be thrown in as the number one. Now you look at Callaway, and they've added so many receivers that Callaway could be an inactive guy on game days. Uh, so I just think it's so fascinating how much things have flipped around. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how Olave works next to Thomas Landry, but also next to Pete Carmichael, or also with Pete Carmichael. Catherine Terrell of The Athletic is with us here on Spain and Fitz talking about the Saints. You can follow her at cat underscore Terrell. Uh, you know, I am kind of wondering what's going on with the whole Sean Payton thing and how much it's being talked about there. There's all these stories about the teams that he's looking at for a potential return. How much tea has not been spilled about his decision to leave if, as we suspected at the time, it's not really about retiring, spending time with his family, more free time, et cetera, was it simply that he just didn't want to be a part of a team uh, that might be, you know, not as successful? Is is there any tea that we're missing, any drama that we're missing there? You know, from the Saints end, uh, the people I've talked to, there's no hard feelings there, and it's not the sense I get. Now, of course, if uh, he tries to go to a team in the division – they're going to have to pay up. I mean, that's been pretty well established. But I don't think that the Saints would be upset. I mean, it's kind of this balance of they respect him for everything they did or everything he did, but they're not just going to let him go for free. So if a team comes calling next year, depending on what team it is, maybe it would be a little bit of hardball. Uh, I think more so if it was a team like the Cowboys or uh, the Falcons or someone in the division – but, no, I mean, I don't think there's hard feelings. I mean, maybe privately he felt like the team had a lot of holes and he thought it was best to step away at this time. But if that's the case, you know, he's keeping that to himself. So, I mean, maybe something comes out down the road. But right now I think no hard feelings. Uh, I think he and Mickey Loomis are still golfing together and things like that. And sometimes you see them with Drew Brees. So it's all well and good right now, but uh, we'll see what happens when 
you know, the stakes are higher and a team actually makes a move to get him. Catherine, real quick before we let you go, got a record prediction for us? Never too soon. <laughs> you know, I always get tripped up now that there's an extra game. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like it's so like. It's so lame. I, I said this last year, and I still feel like this team is very similar to last year. So I still see them around the 10 and 7 mark. See, I said I got it right. I said 10 and 7 and not 9 and go. 7. But, well done. Uh, Learning. Yeah. yeah, you did better than I did with 17. I, I still screw it up all the time. Uh, you guys can read her on The Athletic. Follow her on Twitter at Cat underscore Terrell. We appreciate your time so much, Catherine. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I'm not. I'm never going to get used to 17. It still feels awkward, but she she nailed it. In the meantime, the we have huge news in the NBA. We'll get you caught up on. Plus, you guys are angry at our social media polls. We'll read some of those responses coming up. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Y'all are big mad about our two-a-day social media, and I want to tell you, Uh, if you're complaining every day about why we're asking these questions, at some point I'd like for you to take the hint that we're doing these every day as part of a larger series. So why don't you do this for the Lions? Well, uh, we just did. Why don't you talk about the Bears? Well, we did. Why don't you talk about good teams? We're gonna. So uh, just be patient, kiddos. It's July. We're all getting fired up for the NFL season. Camp is coming soon, and we have been doing two-a-days, which allows us to get a feel for the teams and what they did in the offseason and what the expectations are. And then, out of generosity of spirit, we ask you for your opinions. If you don't want to proffer them, you don't have to. So uh, I guess shut it is what I'm saying about the polls. Take them, leave them. Just yeah, don't ask me about them. Like, y'all need to chill out. Just There's this general rule of, like, just we're just asking the question about this right. team over just, here. You, yep. You're fired yeah. up about it. And also, Saints um, fans are particularly cares? fired up that we even ask questions about how good they're going to be. It's like, oh, so insulted. I'm like, relax. Your team will – if your team's going to be great, they'll do it on the field. Who cares right. what Not any of us think in Not July? Uh, speaking of who cares, dumbest post possible in all of Twitter, and that's really saying something. Uh, uh, if you take the time, you care enough to post it, Save your two words and my sanity and leave who cares out of here. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We are going to breeze through aforementioned polls because we do have some NBA stuff to get to. But we talked about the Saints and Colts today as part of our continuing two-a-days. We wanted to get your opinions. And you are pretty high on the Saints, but not as high as many of the experts I've spoken to. Just 8% of you think they'll win 0 to 4 games. 57.8, only 5 to 7 wins. 30.7%, 8 to 10, 3.5, 11 plus. That 30.7, guessing at 8 to 10, is low to me, Fitz, based on a lot of experts who are high on the Saints. Um, but apparently the folks on my and your Twitter are not as, as not as hot. Yeah, I'm not particularly that high on the Saints. Like, I, I think... You know, there was a good breakdown there of we're relying on a lot of people to come through that are either older or that haven't done it before, right? right. So, and, and we're relying on and Jameis to thing. turn around and be mm-hmm. like consistently good without Sean Payton. Like, I just yeah. don't think you can lose Sean Payton without it, it setting your team back. I'm not as hot as everybody else as well on that. The Colts, on the other hand, interesting. People are pretty optimistic about what they look like with that great defense and with Matt Ryan at the helm. 8.8% said 0 to 5 wins, 37% said 6 to 8, 48.5% said 9 to 11 wins, 5% said 12 plus. So 
pretty big chunk, the highest percentage, thinks that the Colts could get up to 9 to 11 wins. Not too bad. Um, we also asked about some folks sticking around. And when we do these polls, we also have people freaking out. What happened? What did he do? The answer is nothing. We're just uh, basing it off of context. Frank Reich, a little bit of a hot seat after the Carson Wentz decision. So we asked, what do you think his future in Indy will look like? 7.8% said won't finish this season as head coach. 39.9% said he'll be gone after this season. 52.3% said he'll be the coach for three-plus more years. I think I'm in the majority there, Fitz. I think he will survive the Wentz situation and will get to stick around. I think they have faith in him. Jameis Winston is an interesting one. We asked about his future in New Orleans. 36.4% said he will not be QB1 by the end of this season. 40.4% said he will be QB1 through just the end of this year, 14% through the end of next season, and 9.1% said he'll be around for three-plus seasons. So the majority do not see this as a long-term solution for the Saints. Yeah, I don't think it's a long-term solution for the Saints at all. Like, I, I actually agree with the majority on both of these. Like, I think Matt Ryan's going to have a bunch of success, and I think the Colts are going to have a good year, so Frank Reich will be fine. I think Jameis Winston is not going to have a bunch of success, and as a result – they will be looking for a quarterback. I, I think that's that's fairly, in my mind, that's the the clearest path to see for the Saints. All right, it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, we started the show talking about the Pacers offering a four-year, $133 million offer sheet for DeAndre Ayton. Suns received it and matched it per Woj. He will return to Phoenix. He cannot be traded without his consent for a full year. Can't be traded until January 15th at the earliest, and that would be with consent. Interesting reporting from Shams Sharania, who seems to be doing the work of the Suns here, as he tweeted out, the Suns made clear throughout free agency that the franchise intended to bring Aiton back. I can't finish it without laughing, because that's not true. They did not make that clear throughout free agency. From the beginning of the conversations about Aiton's future, there were serious questions about how they valued him and what they were willing to spend. Now the Pacers put him in a tough spot where they had to give him four years, $133 million max. Now they have got him alongside Devin Booker and Chris Paul. This, to me, feels right. They have to go $15 million into the tax, but they're giving themselves a shot to win in this window. And while I think they handled it terribly because now they have a guy on the roster that did not feel wanted, at least they've got him. Uh, to me, any conversation about what they intended to do, we have to backtrack all the way to last year in the playoffs because last year in the playoffs, not this season, but the season before, when he had a, a great run at one point, and we're like, man, this is the DeAndre Ayton we hoped we would see. The team right then had an opportunity to do the max contract. They could they could have done this then. So for any conversation that they always thought they would get this done, well, they've had over a year to do that. So that seems like revisionist history. They wanted him to see what the market was going to be. I think they were banking that the market wouldn't be what he thought it would be. Turns out the market was. Now all of a sudden they've got to overpay to keep him. I think it is the right move for the Suns, absolutely, because it keeps them in contention in the West, like we talked about earlier. They didn't have any solution that lets him walk, that helps him even now or even later. So in my mind, they had to do this. I'm just glad they did it, because otherwise you'd be looking at Chris Paul and, De and uh, Devin Booker and trying to convince them that everything's not just going to hell and that there wouldn't be a reason to leave. This was their only way to keep everybody together. Yeah, and I think I agree with uh, someone on my timeline who wrote, it's okay to overpay to keep your window open. In this case, losing him, while you know that Chris Paul's time is running out, while you know that Devin Booker is one of the best players in the league, and losing him for nothing, 
is worse to me than overpaying by a bit too much. Oh, a thousand percent. Like the the angst that you go through realizing that you handled it that poorly and they're just gone is is, is massive. And draft equity, draft capital matters for everybody. So even if all you were going to get back from him for him was something in the draft, at least you can hang your hat on that and say, look, guys, we're preparing for this window to end and then we're going to prepare for the next window to start. Like there are a million ways you can at least twist that. If you lose him for absolutely nothing, that's egg on the face of the franchise for a decade. If you overpay for him, then, you know, you just shrug your shoulders because as you said earlier, max no longer means top five player in the NBA. Mm -hmm. It means max value to this team right now. And that's different for every team to decide what max means, but there are just certain times you got to look at it and say, well, we can either pay the max or we're going to be irrelevant. And that's that, that forces your hand monetarily. What we know too, is that Deandre Ayton cannot be involved in a trade deal until January 15. So that means that right now, if Kevin Durant is insistent on leaving the nets before the season begins, it will not be in a deal with the Suns. that potentially opens things up for the heat which is a team that he would like to go to, but that looks extremely complicated. And I have yet to see anyone come up with a deal that makes sense for the right pieces to go to the Nets and the right pieces to stay for Kevin to play with. I'm not going to ever say that Pat Riley and Heat culture can't somehow pull it off, but that looks very, very unlikely. So who else is in the mix if the Suns are out? And what other teams could potentially make three-team deals work? Or if it's... Is Kevin Durant going to look around and say this was not the season to try to pull this off? There were not enough teams with cap space, not enough opportunities to leave. We'll find out. Freddie and Fitzsimmons will tell us next with Durant. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.